Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. We shouldn't have to ask for permission from the government in order to exercise a God-given, constitutionally protected right. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host. What's up, Liberty Lamos? Welcome back to your favorite Liberty podcast. And if it's not, well, that's okay. But I hope it is. I know for many of you it is, at least for many members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, the people that are out there funding this operation, helping us to buy some new equipment. We have been getting microphone upgrades. We've been getting some mixers, some stuff to really help us provide better audio quality, different types of shows that we're able to do, and it's all thanks to you guys. There are various levels you can join at. For people that join at the $25 level, they get to actually hop on a monthly conference call with us, which has really turned into basically a uh, an unpublished episode of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. We have some drinks, we chat with a few of our fans, and it really is a good time. And the people at that level really have a lot more input into the show. We really do take their feedback, well, very seriously, because they really help us fund this operation. Of course, if you don't want to chip out that much? No problem, because you can donate at $10 a month, $5 a month, but at every single level you join at, you get access to all of the exclusive content that we've done here in 2017. 30 plus extra podcasts we've done over the last eight months or so, so there's plenty of content there. So much fun that we provide in the Lions of Liberty Pride, so we do encourage you to check that out by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. I also encourage you to check out the show notes for today's show because we hit on a lot of big topics with today's guests. You can find those at lionsofliberty.com slash 308 because, yes, this is the 308th edition of this program. Exciting stuff. Here with me now is the executive director of Gun Owners of America, as well as the co-host, along with our good friend Remzo W. Martinez of a new podcast called Firing Back. I am pleased to welcome Mr. Eric Pratt. Eric, are you ready to roar? I sure am. It's good to be with you, Mark. It's great to be with you. And, and as we discussed before the show, I, uh, I spoke to your father a couple of years ago, back when he was the executive director of Gun Owners of America. You have now assumed that role yourself. I think it's pretty safe to say that you grew up in a, a pro-gun household. Uh, but I'm kind of curious whether you always agreed with your father's views on guns and gun rights growing up. Or, or did you ever have a point where you didn't quite see eye to eye with that? Was there any evolution on that end for you? No, there was no evolution on that. I've <laughs> always been pro-gun. I haven't always been interested in politics. Now, that part would be true. And, you know, that's just when I was still growing up and, you know, junior high, high school, the the, the whole political thing bored me. Uh, although, you know, I enjoyed shooting and I've been trained in shooting. And so I, I was very uh, pro-gun. Uh, it, was, it was probably uh, not till at the end of college that I really started getting engaged politically and then went to graduate school to, to further that and got a poli sci degree. Uh, and then later on came to work for gun owners of America and have been loving it. So no, we, we've never been uh, at odds on this issue at all. Sorry, I can't have a more exciting, uh, you know, uh, turnaround story, but uh, no, it's been all real good. 
not, not everyone has twists and turns along the way. I mean, you know, looking back, I I tried to maybe argue with my dad a little bit just to ask him questions about things. But at the end of the day, that's more of a, sometimes that's more of a teenage teenage rebellious thing than a, an, oh, actual, sure. an actual I mean, disagreement. <laughs> yeah, we argued on curfews and things like that when I was young, but uh, not the real important things. Right. So was there something that actually inspired you to take that something specific that inspired you to take that leap from just being pro gun in your personal life to actually become heavily active and get involved with gun owners of America directly? Well, by the time I was finishing graduate school, that my I did my uh, thesis on the Second Amendment, and so the the passion was really full blown, and you know, studying the the, the founders' writings and and just really jumping into the gun issue. And so there was really no nothing else that I wanted to do than to come work at Gun Owners of America. And so I've been here since, uh, you know, 1990 and just really, really enjoying uh, fighting for liberty and, and fighting for freedom. Uh, and, and I think through Gun Owners of America, we've been able to uh, accomplish a lot of really good things. I mean, we've been the leader on some real important issues like constitutional carry, uh, Gun Owners of America was the first national group uh, to to push it, uh, even at a time when there were other groups, uh, other pro-gun groups that uh, either weren't actively supporting it, or in some cases, we had reports from uh, state legislators that they were being taken to the woodshed uh, for introducing uh, constitutional carry legislation. So, you know, GOA always uh, backed them up. Uh, always uh, has supported them and been rallying the troops. And, you know, and of course now, I mean, now all the gun groups are on board with constitutional carry, which by the way, for anybody who's not familiar with that, that's a permitless carry, being able to carry without getting permission from the government uh, the way it should be with all our rights. We shouldn't have to ask for permission from the government in order to exercise a God-given, constitutionally protected right. So uh, anyway, it's been uh, it's been very fulfilling uh, just, you know, being here to uh, really uh, apply the Second Amendment and uh, try to reclaim as much freedom as we can. Now, when you say that some politicians and legislators were taken to the woodshed, uh for the idea of supporting constitutional carry, who who are they taking to the woodshed by? Are you saying other gun groups actually oppose them doing that? Yes, that that is exactly what I'm saying. And we have their letters to us uh, in the archives. It's a sad thing. Uh, you know, they were threatened with uh, being given Fs. And I have to assume you're referring to the NRA here. Uh, I am. I was trying to be delicate, but uh, that's exactly right. We're going to name names on this show. <laughs> well, the, the idea was at the time that, uh, you know, shall issue was the way to go and anything else was considered uh, upsetting the apple cart. Shall issue conceal carry, even though it was an improvement, uh, shall issue conceal carry is basically if you are not a criminal and you apply for a permit, then they shall issue it to you. Before that, you know, around the mid 80s, there was only 10 states that that had that. Before that, in most states, uh, they had what's called a may issue concealed carry. And so that means they may or may not give it to you. So shall issue was definitely imp an improvement. It was a step in the right direction. But we have always wanted to go to what Vermont has always had since the beginning of the republic. They've had a constitutional carry, permitless carry system where if you're not a criminal, you're not a bad guy, you're not carrying uh, in, you know, trying to commit a crime, then you are free to carry. You don't have to ask for permission. And guess what? Vermont, year after year after year, 
ranks as the safest state in the union. So it's obviously working. You know, all these horror stories about, oh, if people just have free access to guns, it's going to mean, you know, the proverbial Wild West. It just doesn't happen. Those are always scare tactics that the other side throws. And every state that uh, goes conceal carry, uh, all those fears, that fear mongering never uh, actually played out. What about the argument, Eric, that, uh, you know, places like Vermont aren't really great examples because they'll say, well, Vermont is largely rural. It's kind of a different, a different sort of society, a different sort of communities there. And you can't apply those same rules to say a big city like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, where, uh, you know, having a lot of gun ownership, this is the claim, of course, not, not what I believe, having a lot of gun ownership is, is more of a problem in a city and an urban area. Well, and, and certainly in those city and urban areas, uh, <laughs> bad guys are going to carry anyway, right? I mean, you know, those cities that you're naming off, Chicago and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, which have very strict gun control laws uh, and are very restrictive of concealed carry, guess what? Uh, they have some of the highest murder rates in the country. In other words, the bad guys are still carrying anyway. So to answer your question, Mark, uh, you know, for the longest time there was Vermont. Vermont was the only constitutional carry state, but now we have 14. We have 14 states that have gone constitutional carry, and it's working very well. In fact, the safest five states in our country with the lowest murder rates are constitutional carry states. Four of them have constitutional carry for concealed carry, which means people can carry concealed without asking for permission. And the fifth is constitutional carry for open carry. Uh, but in other words, the point is it's working. Uh, you know, the amazing thing is that concealed carriers are the safest segment in society. If there's one good thing that uh, having the, the permit system brought about, and, and, and mind you in saying that, we, we want to move towards freedom. You know, we like the constitutional carry system. But if there's one thing that we've been able to see through all the, the millions of concealed carry permits that have been issued, Concealed carriers are the safest segment of society. They commit crimes at a lower rate even than the police do. And so for anybody who wants to say, you know, oh, we just can't trust average citizens having guns, even though the concealed carriers are the safest segment of society, then to be consistent, they're going to have to start advocating for disarming the cops uh, because they actually statistically commit more crimes than do concealed carriers. So really, this has been an idea that uh, has has worked w very well. Freedom and liberty work very well. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just makes logical sense that bad guys would always uh, have to fear, uh, you know, anywhere where there could be good, a good guy with a gun. And, and this is why uh, it's working so well in these states, in these constitutional carry states. Now, Eric, I'm out here in California. And um, as you know, we don't have, have the greatest gun laws <laughs> in the world. Maybe Not the land of freedom. Yeah, uh, possibly the worst gun laws, maybe tied with New Jersey or they, they might even be slightly ahead. But it's a close call. And, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of states like this, people might not realize in California, there is actually concealed carry, technically, like you said, but it's a May issue state. And as you know, when, when it's May issue, it really means no issue because they, they, they will not give it to regular people. You're, you know, I could not go get a concealed carry permit. The only people that can seem to get them are 
surprise, surprise, mayors, you know, people that are highly politically connected, they can get the permits, but most people cannot. But I think even a lot of people who support concealed carry, they still agree, like here in California, and I, th- I believe most states, or at least a good number of states that allow concealed carry, you do have to get a concealed carry permit. Uh, I-, I would take it from talking to you and from knowing GOA that would you even oppose the idea of having to get a permit for concealed carry? Obviously, constitutional carry is, is what you hold high as as the ideals, but when people express concern saying, well, okay, I'm okay with concealed carry, but I, we got to know these people are safe. They have to at least get that permit. What would you say to that? Well, I would say this, uh, you know, we support moving. It, it was fine going from may issue to shall issue. In other words, that's a step towards freedom. Right. Uh, we would never support, let's say, taking a Vermont state and knocking it back down to uh, having to get a permit. So it all depends you know, are, are you headed towards the goal line or not? Are you headed towards freedom or not? And let's face it, the Second Amendment says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, a lot of infringements have arisen over the years. And part of the mission at Gun Owners of America is to start peeling those restrictions back one at a time. And, and thank you. We've been very active in the states doing that, as we've been talking about with constitutional carry. It's been going very well. And as long as we're going in, in the right direction, uh, then we might support a particular policy, but only if it's moving us towards freedom. Uh, Eric, I know you hear a lot of objections, obviously, because to uh, to your positions on guns when you're out there or else there wouldn't really be a need for your organization if, if there weren't a lot of people objecting to this. But w- I'm just curious, when you're out there arguing for gun rights, what's the biggest objection that you hear from people? If you're talking about objections, let's say on the other side, it would be it would have to be the U.S. has too many guns. And and that's why it's so dangerous here Too easy access. You know, people can access, get their hands on guns too easily, of course, which is a farce because there's all kinds of background checks and infringements and restrictions. But anyway, that's the claim. And, you know, the irony is, is that the United States is not even in the top 100 when it comes to the highest murder rates. Uh, we are not. And when you look at the top 100 countries, they all have uh, tougher, uh, stricter gun control than does the United States. So, you know, this is obvious a case of cherry picking because, you know, the anti-gunners, they love to point to countries like England and Canada. And, you know, they say, oh, they have lots of gun control there, but lower murder rates. What they don't tell you is that they actually had lower murder rates when uh, before their gun control laws were enacted and they've actually their murder rates have actually risen. Uh, but, you know, they, they cherry pick their data. Uh, they, you know, they ignore countries like Venezuela and Mexico. You know, Venezuela, oh, my goodness, they passed a complete ban on the private ownership of firearms in 2012. And then at a later date, they began confiscating those firearms. It has not gone well there. Uh, their murder rate is uh, like 20 times higher than it is here in the United States. It's horrendous. Uh, Same thing with Mexico. You know, it it is virtually impossible. They make it very difficult to get firearms legally in Mexico. And yet uh, their murder rate is three times higher. So, you know, you don't see the anti-gunners pointing to countries like that. And they ignore the fact that really most of the crime and, and murder in our country is fueled out of a very small uh, very few areas. 5% of the counties in our country represent two thirds of the murder. So you're talking about 
cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., by the way, places where they make it very difficult for average citizens to own and carry guns. And yet when you look at states like Vermont, which we were talking about, and New Hampshire, both of them uh, constitutional carry states where people can carry without permission, they have murder rates that are among the lowest in, in the world. So really the problem is not one of you know the number of guns the problem is laws that prevent people from defending themselves you know one thing i hear from a lot of people out here who, who don't you know value the the idea of, of owning uh, owning a gun owning a firearm is they say come on really what are the odds that you're actually going to be in a situation where you actually need to use a gun and I just think, well, I don't know the odds. I don't need to know the odds. But I know that the odds, if I do find myself in that situation and don't have a gun, my odds are not very good of surviving. So I don't know the odds. I don't need to know the odds. But I know that there are people and there are circumstances where people have and do regularly use guns to defend themselves. For some reason, I can only really find the, these stories on gun websites, on pro-gun sites. You don't see them blasted on CNN. It's almost like these incidents aren't happening when it comes to the mainstream media. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we can sort of, I guess, spread the word or spread the idea to people that guns are something that can protect you and we should all at least consider having to protect our loved ones, especially if we have a family, if we have children. Uh, but when they don't have that mindset, when they're not in that mindset and they, they don't see it as something they could ever actually need. Yeah. And that is one of the sad things, because in some senses you, you could, you know, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, we have the stories on our website. We have a self-defense corner. People can go to our website at gunowners.org and see the stories of self-defense. We put them up on our Facebook page. And yet, you know, people choose to see what they want to see. And, you know, it's a sad thing. It's kind of like not getting car insurance or home insurance before the accident. And sometimes you see that with people's lives. And in the podcast that Gun Owners of America is starting this month, we're going to be talking about things like the Los Angeles riots. So, Mark, it's ironic that, you know, you're out in California and people out there uh, would give you that kind of story about, you know, you know, who really needs a gun uh, because Californians have been there before. You know, with the Los Angeles riots in the early 90s, uh, you know, the police and the National Guard were not going into the hotspots. And there were a lot of people killed during those riots, a lot of people injured. Uh, and, you know, USA Today reported that lifelong gun control advocates were running to gun stores to buy an item that they thought they would never need, a gun. And yet they were outraged. I, you know, imagine this, lifelong gun control advocates outraged that there was a waiting period on purchasing a firearm. But see, they had never bought a firearm ahead of time. They didn't think they would ever need it, right? And then when they did need it, oh, shoot, I need the insurance. Now there's a waiting period on it. And so sometimes it's, you know, the proverbial, you know, you have to get mugged before you realize how important it is. And, you know, we've seen it in, in other places. And, you know, there, there have been some sad cases. There was a story out of New Jersey, a couple, James and Meredith, uh, who actually lived in New Jersey because they liked the One of the things they said about it, they liked the gun laws there, that they're very strict. They thought that that would keep them safe. The police could keep them safe. Well, one day they're walking their dog and right as they're coming back into their home, they're mugged. And he's beaten to within an inch of his life. She's violently raped. I mean, it was just a horrendous scene. Well, guess what? In the aftermath of that, they leave the state. They flee the state. They move to Ohio. And I forget if ABC or AP, one of those agencies was uh, 
was reporting the story and, and interviewing them. And, and the husband says, you know, we, we, we were never in favor of guns. And, and that's why we chose New Jersey because of their gun laws, yada, yada. But now I'm a gun owner and uh, I'm not going to let this happen again. And, you know, so there again, he now gets it. He realizes it, re- realizes the need. It's just sad that some people have to go through the dark valley before they realize that ultimately nobody else is duty bound to protect you. You have to take that into your own hands. Uh, you know, the police can't be there. And I mean, 99.9% of the time, they will not be there in time to protect you. They're the crew that comes up afterwards and they, they, you know, get the details and then they go track down the bad guy. Uh, but they're not going to do, they just can't, they can't be everywhere at the same time, nor quite frankly, would we want them everywhere <laughs> at the same time. Absolutely. And almost any situation when you're actually going to need to use a firearm, which would be very rare, I, I would admit it would probably be very rare. But when that moment comes, you don't have time to call the police. You're you're literally within seconds of, of defending your life. So there's really no way to think about anything other than defending yourself if you have the ability to do. If you don't have the ability to do so, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you, you, that's when you're going to really have to start rethinking things, I guess. Yeah, there is no time. And, and even in cases where the bad guy was known about in advance and had been reported to the police, a very sad case, an, another case out of New Jersey, a woman named Carol Bound. And uh, she was a beautician. Uh, she had had a boyfriend who was very violent. She'd broken up with him. Well, he didn't want to let go. Well, she ended up getting a restraining order against him. She was fearing for her life, but she didn't think that that piece of paper would be enough to, to stop him if he ever returned to her home again. But, you know, here's a situation where the police knew about him. She had a restraining order on him, but she thought, you know what? I need to get a gun. Now, here's another case, by the way. She had never done that ahead of time, but now she fears her life's in danger. She's going to get a gun. Well, that's a good move, except that in New Jersey, you know, some people say, well, what's wrong with, you know, checking out people before they buy a gun, make sure they're not a bad guy. Well, one of the problems is, is uh, a right delayed is a right denied. And in her case, she ended up dying as a result. New Jersey took so long, in, they took weeks in checking her out that the former boyfriend, in defiance of the protective order, showed up at her doorstep and murdered her, not even with a gun, with a knife, just stabbed her to death. Um, very tragic scene. And so, you know, it, it just, it's infuriating that, um, you know, the laws in this country that will delay somebody like Carol Bound from being able to protect herself when she needed it most. And yet, obviously, for a bad guy, uh, you know, there, if, if it's, uh, you know, using a knife or if it's stealing a firearm, they're going to get their hands on weapons. Uh, no law is going to stop that. Yeah, that. That's such a tragic case. I remember that one. But it, it does highlight a point that you don't necessarily need a gun just to protect yourself from people with guns, especially for many women who, and this is not a misogynist statement. I know I'm going to get an email or a tweet from someone, but many women are just simply not as physically able to defend themselves from other men as a man would be. So for a woman, a gun is a great equalizer. You know, if, if a woman is facing a very large, strong man with a knife or even just his fist, most women are going to be in trouble. They're not going to have a shot in, the, in that contest. But when they have a firearm, the playing field is leveled. Absolutely. It's it is the great equalizer. And, uh, you know, when people go to our 
website at gunowners.org and you look in our self-defense corner, several of them are situations where uh, it was uh, women with firearms defending themselves in, in situations like this. Thankfully, uh, women who didn't have to go through a waiting period, but they had a firearm. In fact, one of my favorites uh, self-defense stories from last year uh, was a gal in Arizona, small gal, four foot, 11 inches. I think she was only 85 pounds, if I remember the, uh, the I mean, the, the, <laughs> the article even gave her poundage. In other words, she was teeny. She's coming out of a convenience store with a big gulp, you know, in one hand. And a guy comes up to her and, you know, chokes her and sticks a gun in her ribs and says, give me your money. Now, let me tell you something. This chick was something else because with one hand, she drops her big gulp with the free hand, unholsters her firearm, then pulls her firearm up, shoots and kills the guy. End of threat. Now, I don't care who you are, if you're a woman or a guy, that's pretty impressive. And in that situation, physical force probably wasn't going to do it. Uh, you needed a firearm. And uh, so anyway, that, like I said, that's one of, that was probably my uh, favorite from 2016. Uh, but, I, you know, it, it makes your point, Mark. The firearm is the great equalizer. Uh, you know, why should we all have to worry about learning jujitsu or, you know, uh, some, you know, martial arts uh, in order to protect? I mean, that's fine. But, uh, you know, the firearm is the great equalizer. Absolutely, Eric. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what you're doing with the new podcast, Firing Back, as well as take a few questions from members members of our support group, the Lions of Liberty Pride, in just a second. But first, I got a few bills to pay. We'll be right back. Three, two, one. Hey, folks, I'm Remso W. Martinez, the host of the one, the only Remso Republic podcast. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking, to be exact. This is a pitch for another show. I already listened to too many. But hey, I've got news for you. Each and every Wednesday, you can escape the mindless entertainment and loud political pundits by escaping to the place which truly is the clash of punk rock and politics, the Remso Republic. From comedians to politicians to real-life superheroes and liberty activists, we don't stick to normal often as we hard charge each and every week to bring you the freshest entertainment and news in an ocean of shows fighting for your attention. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many more platforms. Don't miss out. Join the fun and be awesome. Stay up to date with the latest news and updates by visiting remzorepublic.com. All right, folks, and we are here again with Eric Pratt, Executive Director of Gun Owners of America. And right now, I want to dive into a few questions that I got from some members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. As you guys know, these are the guys that keep us funded, keep this operation going, so we don't have to keep reaching into our own pockets. And uh, as a result of that, they get to give some questions to our guests. So the first question comes from Christopher Osborne. Now, I actually happen to know Christopher lives in Norway, so he's probably coming from a, a, a different perspective than people that have you know, lived in the United States uh, as far as guns go. Uh, but Christopher asks, what's the best way to convince people who are afraid of widespread gun ownership that they do not need to be afraid? And you did kind of address this a little bit earlier, but maybe you can expand on the idea. You know, I would say encourage people to do their own research. From what we've seen, th there's a lot of converts, but they always go from the anti-position to the pro-gun position, and especially in, in terms of the researchers. And, and I know that may sound kind of dry, but uh, we have a section on our website that deals with this, that all the people who are uh, known researchers, they've all switched from one. If they, if they have switched, 
it's all been from the anti-gun position to the pro-gun position. And, and then you have the people like James and Meredith that I was just talking about. I mean, they started off anti-gun. And as a result of a tragedy in their life, they're now pro-gun. And, and there's a lot of cases like that. And as, you, as somebody starts doing the research, you see that, for example, in this country, okay, you're talking about, and I realize he's uh, out of country, but in the United States, guns are used 16 to 100 times more often to save life than to take life. And that's according to Obama's Center for Disease Control. So, you know, part of the problem is, is that if you're only just flipping on the TV and seeing what they feed you, you're going to get one impression, and that is guns are bad. But if you actually start doing the research, you'll start seeing, you know what, there are a lot more cases of guns being used in self-defense. So, you know, I would just encourage people to, to research it. All right, next question comes from Curtis Berrielt, and he asks, do you feel that the NRA has the best intentions for gun owners? Now, you did address earlier some of the differences between GOA and NRA, and at least in terms of what they're lobbying for. Uh, but, but he goes on to ask, with the NRA not supporting NFA repeals as the National Firearms Act, maybe you can touch on that for a second. Do you think groups like yours are on the rise? I do think so, uh, in, to answer the last part first. And, and there are differences between gun owners of America and the NRA. I mean, GOA has uh, always supported the Second Amendment as protecting a God-given right, just like it says in the Declaration of Independence, all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And if our rights come from God, then we shouldn't be asking permission from the government to exercise our right to protect ourselves or any other right for that matter. And so as you look over the years, there have been differences between the two organizations. You know, the NRA helped write the Brady Law with, with the instant check. GOA opposed it. Uh, the NRA in the 90s was supporting gun-free school zones. They even uh, supported a bill to impose background checks at gun shows. Now, they would argue, well, it was better than a worse bill, but we opposed both bills and actually were able to kill the bad bill and the not-so-bad bill. Uh, same thing with the Veterans Disarmament Act, uh, which has resulted, sadly, in 250,000 uh, military veterans who are disarmed, but they they supported the legislation that used basically non-criminal information. In other words, things like PTSD and things like that to uh, disqualify veterans. Now, they would argue, well, there, there was a provision in there for them to uh, get their rights restored if they're unduly tagged. But, you know, of course, a lot of people don't have the money to, to take it to court. Well, see, GOA opposed all this, and we opposed it on, on the basis of rights, uh, on the basis of freedom. And so that's, you know, when, when you talk about the differences between the two organizations, I mean, uh, you know, we were the ones, for example, that uh, exposed the compromise in 2013, right after the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, there was a real push by the president to impose gun control. And, and y'all might remember that. Uh, and Gun Owners of America uh, came out full bore against that. We rallied the troops uh, against it. And when we found out that there was a compromise going between two senators, Manchin and Toomey and the NRA, we exposed it to our members. And we put out an email and said, you know, call the NRA, urge them to, to back off on this. Uh, the New York Times back in April of 2013 wrote on this and said, you know, Manchin was uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia was real frustrated because he's in the midst of these compromise talks, negotiations, and all of a sudden the NRA stopped talking to him. Well, it was as a result of the, the heat and uh, that we were putting on and the fact that we had flipped on the lights 
to expose what was happening. So anyway, it's been very exciting. And that's what we were talking about before. Just very exciting that we've been able to push uh, the football forward towards the goal line, towards more freedom. Yeah, you know, sometimes there's uh, intramural disagreements. And, and to answer the the, 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 the question, yeah, I, I do think that, uh, you know, for the most part, we're, we're on the same page and working towards the same goal. But when those differences arise, we're not afraid to say, hey, uh, you're stepping out of bounds from what the Second Amendment says. And, you know, that that's where we're going to stand. Why do you think it is that the NRA just seems to often take sort of a, a somewhat wishy-washy stance on things as opposed to Gun Owners of America, which always seems to take that straightforward, principled line 100% of the time? Is there a sense of D.C. corruption, maybe? It just becomes easier for them to operate there if they are willing to, quote-unquote, compromise with politicians as opposed to taking a hard line? I mean, why do you think there's been such a, a divergence between the NRA and groups like GOA. You know, there's a proverb in the Bible that that actually answers your question, Mark, and it, and it talks about beware of the king's delicacies and sitting at the king's table. The whole idea is it's very tempting when you're up here and, and you're blasting a politician for compromising. Uh, the temptation is is that you know now you're going to be shut out of their office you're not going to have access to them if you do that and so we realize that in in us doing what we're doing it means that we may not get invited to all the right parties it may mean that we may lose access uh to certain offices but our idea is that we we're here to defend the second amendment and we're representing the people that send us here but you know it, it, i you know, and I understand living up here. It's very easy for people that are working up here and they're working with the politicians every day. Uh, they don't want to lose that access. And we've had that give and take actually publicly with the NRA before where they've admitted that they'll even that they use their grading system as uh, a means of uh, engendering access into offices. And so that's one of the things that uh, that's another big difference between us and the NRA, where we've given compromising politicians a C, D or an F, and uh, and yet they'll get an A from the NRA. You guys might have slightly different grading systems then. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, w- you might say one has their hand on the scales. That's right. Okay. One more question I want to take, and I- I'm pretty sure I can predict your answer, but I want to expand on it a little bit. Lance Psycho asks, do you support the ownership of fully automatic weapons and the repeal of the restrictions on them that Reagan instituted? Because a lot of times I'll be talking to people who will be with me like on owning quote unquote normal guns, you know, like like you know, a handgun and that kind of thing, but they'll say, Well, surely you don't think people should be able to go out and just buy an, a, a machine gun, right? So what's your response to that? Absolutely, we we support the ownership. And in fact, we supported we were involved in a couple of recent cases over the last year in the, the court system. Uh, sadly, uh, you know, a lot of judges, uh, I think, think the way uh, you were uh, just indicating uh, that, uh, you know, the, the kind of opposition that you run into. That's what we found in the courts as well. And both of those cases failed. But we were trying to uh, repeal the 86 ban uh, that Reagan had imposed on otherwise a, a pretty good bill. But it was put in as part of the Firearms Owners Protection Act, which basically said that no uh, newly made uh, automatic firearm could be owned after the date in 1986. So basically you have a fixed number of guns, but you know, it's just fear mongering when people say, you know, Oh, can't own a gun like that. I mean, these guns, you know, they're not used in crime. They're not the criminal's weapon of choice. I mean, if, if you're really going to go after the criminal's weapon of choice, then you should be going after handguns. 
So, you know, those people that are giving you those objections about automatic weapons, really, they should be opposed to handguns because that's the number one weapon used in crime. Now, I'm not saying that to advocate any kind of restrictions on them. I'm just saying if they're going to be logically consistent, that's where their ire needs to go. All right, Eric. Well, you know, there's probably an endless string of objections that can be laid out there. But thankfully, there are organizations like yours that are always going to be there with the answers, even if they're maybe not getting those full answers from some other organizations out there. Uh, Eric, I definitely want to discuss before I let you go what you're doing with this podcast. I'm really excited about it. There aren't that many gun podcasts out there. I've searched for them. So I'm really excited that there is one coming from you guys at GOA, along with our good friend Remzo W. Martinez of the Remzo Republic. So why don't you tell us how this all came together and what your plans are going forward with the Firing Back podcast? We launched it with Remzo. He was kind of a a co-host with me. And we really wanted to tell a story, starting from really some of the topics that that we've touched on here. What if you find yourself in a situation where you've always thought the government would be able to take care of you, but now all of a sudden, you know, you're in the midst of the Los Angeles riots or, uh, you know, post-Hurricane Katrina where the police have fled and now you're dealing with roving gangs or, you know, the Ferguson riots in Missouri from a couple years ago, Uh, you know, or uh, like Carol Bound. Uh, you know, you're in a situation where you're personally being threatened and now you want to buy a firearm. And so it, it the, part of the, the mission that we want to accomplish is challenge people to think these issues through ahead of time, but then also to consider, and, and even for those who consider themselves pro-gun, consider where do our rights come from? And I know that can sound kind of heady, but we try to make it very practical because look, if The source for our rights comes from anything other than what the Declaration of Independence says, that they come from our creator. Then that means it has to come from the 51 percent vote, which means you could have rights here today and gone tomorrow. Or it comes from a piece of paper, which could be changed or it comes from government permission. In other words, they're not very secure sources. And that, you know, how you answer that question has radical implications for how you think about some of the things we've talked about today, like background checks, like uh, machine guns and, and many other issues like that. And then, you know, we, we're going to be delving into the history. Uh, you know, when did how, how did the, the modern rise of gun control happen? And, and then what has GOA been doing? We've been trying to go from just being on defense to going on to the offense and and restoring freedom and repealing restrictions and, and talk about some of the notable victories that we've had. So that that's what uh, that's where we're looking to go with this uh, series of podcasts. And you'll be able to find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, every major podcast website, uh, in addition to our own website at gunowners.org. Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing this with you. This is one of the topics I am the most passionate about. I grew up just like you in a, a very pro-gun household, uh, although I grew up in a, in a pro-gun household in a sort of an anti-gun state uh, growing up in Connecticut. But uh, this has always been a, a very important issue to me. So it's a pleasure to have you on and a pleasure to highlight your organization. Because like I said, when people think of gun lobbies and, and people fighting for gun rights, the NRA is the one everyone thinks of. But the, as far as I'm concerned, the one they should be thinking of is Gun Owners of America. So I want people to really know that this organization is out there. And if you want an organization that's going to be consistently fighting for gun rights, there's no, no other place to look. Well, Mark, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure being on on here with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Take care. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Eric Pratt of Gun Owners of America. And uh, personally, I've only ever been a member of one pro-gun lobbying organization 
And it is indeed Gun Owners of America. Uh, my father was a lifelong member of the NRA, and I think the NRA does do a lot of good work uh, on many issues, especially when it comes to their, their firearms training and their classes and that, that sort of thing. They do great stuff there. So I don't really want to knock the NRA, but when it comes to supporting an organization that is really going to go out there fighting for gun rights and fighting for them all the way, 100%, you really can't beat GOA. So I do highly encourage gun owners out there and people that are concerned with Second Amendment issues to check out Gun Owners of America. It is an excellent organization and an excellent example of activism in the name of liberty. Now, another excellent example of activism, if I do say so myself, is the work that you guys are doing through the DonorC app, the projects that we've been promoting to help people all over the world. And we're currently funding a project thanks to Clint Rankin and Walk the Walk, uh, a little group he has put together with a lot of different Liberty podcasts and other activist groups who have come together to fund various projects through the DonorC app. This one is really great because... You know, as many of you know, Haiti was ravaged by an earthquake about 10 years ago, and they got a lot of aid, but a lot of that aid came in crony form. It came in the form of the Clinton Foundation and a lot of the work they actually did to harm the country of Haiti. So I'm very happy that we're able to actually go in there and and provide some help. This project involves collecting all these plastic bottles that are just littered all throughout Haiti, terrible for the environment, collecting them, and then putting them to great use by actually building a house out of them as well. So this is really great stuff, a really important cleanup project, and it's putting our money where our mouth is. It's showing that we don't just talk the talk, we walk that walk. So you can check out this project by finding uh, project number 1086 over at DonorSea. So if you have the DonorSea app, you, I think you can search it that way. You can also find my profile, Mark Clare. You can find uh, Clint Rankin on there. You can find Gret Glyer. You should see this project on all of our profiles because we've all given to it. And you can also find more information over at the show notes for today's show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 308. Folks, I encourage you highly to check out not just this program every single Monday, but all of the great shows here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed, including Brian McWilliams, two days from now, every Wednesday, Electric Liberty Land, his weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty, and of course, the great work that John Odermatt is doing exposing the injustice in the broken criminal justice system every single Friday on Felony Friday. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.